Thanks to Wonder Capital, sponsor of this episode of Returns on Investment. Wonder is expanding solar finance for the clean energy future and engineering a step change in commercial scale solar installations. For investors, Wonder provides easy access to solar loan funds with a $1,000 minimum investment. Learn more at wondercapital.com slash ROI. That's W-U-N-D-E-R, wondercapital.com slash ROI. From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet, coming to you from our New York City offices. Across town is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi to both of you. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking the M word, as in materiality. And Imogen, it's your favorite topic, institutional asset managers and owners. Investors inside the impact echo chamber may think it's obvious that so-called ESG factors, short for environmental, social, and governance, are, quote, material to financial decision-making. But it turns out that not everyone agrees. The battle has been joined yet again by the Trump administration and various business associations who have pushed back against wins in recent years by proponents of impact and sustainable investing. There's been a certain amount of hand-wringing about this growing backlash to impact and sustainable investment approaches. But David, in a recent column, you wrote that this brouhaha is all to the good. What do you mean by that? Well, Brian, there's um, a, a certain amount of background here that I will try to do very briefly. Imogen is what we call an ERISA geek. And ERISA is the uh, law that governs these pension plans and that lays out kind of what fiduciary duty means to these big asset managers and asset owners. But what has happened in recent months is the Trump administration has issued some guidance in the form of a memo um, around this notion of fiduciary duty that in effect walks back a little ways, at least, the guidance that was issued by the Obama administration, which itself reversed the guidance of the Bush administration, which reversed the guidance of the Clinton administration. So this has been a seesaw for decades now, and we are well into, you know, round, who knows how many rounds of, of this debate. And what it comes down to, frankly, is whether these um, pension fund managers can take into account so-called non-financial indicators, which have come to be known as this, these ESG factors, environmental, social, and governance, um, when they're making investment decisions, and whether that is good fiduciary practice on their part. And the folks who think that these factors are important say they should take them into account, and the folks who think that they're a distraction from making as much money as possible think they shouldn't take them into account. And that's basically been raging back and forth. So the two fronts of this debate right now, one is, as I say, what are what is the notion or the definition of fiduciary responsibility for these pension fund managers? And the second is, what should count and be legitimate as a topic for shareholder resolutions. The things that shareholders and some activist groups will get put onto the proxy voting for uh, you know, corporate annual meetings. 
And, you know, that was for years kind of a largely symbolic kind of quixotic attempt by folks to, to raise various issues. What's really scared the companies in recent, in recent months is that some of these things have actually started to win. So um, ExxonMobil and um, Occidental Petroleum uh, management said, don't vote in favor of this, these resolutions that suggested or recommended that we do a full accounting of climate-related risks. And in fact, the shareholders voted fairly overwhelmingly in those cases to uh, ask management to, to fully account for those risks. Um, and that's partly because these big institutional asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard and others uh, switched sides and actually voted with the activists and said um, that management should take those risks into account. I think just last week, Chevron had a vote, and I don't think it passed, but it was to take into account um, methane emissions. Um, I think it got 45%. Um, so these things are not, you know, not just symbolic anymore. These, these are, are real. And so there's been a pushback on that that these things are also should not be material and they should be outside of the realm of shareholder resolutions. So this question of what is material, what should count in investment decision making, that is the key question. If they're material, then obviously any investment manager should take them into account. And if they're not material, then, you know, even the even the impact folks should probably say, you know, it's fine not to take them into account because they don't really affect anything. I happen to believe that they are material and that, you know, that's almost obvious at some level if you think about climate change or even income inequality or other sorts of factors that over the course of time that these pension plans have to uh, look out uh, over the horizon that those things will, in fact, affect the value of their assets but that's that's the question that's that's on the table right now. So so Imogen, uh, that that wise sage uh, Madonna uh, once famously said that we are living in a material world, uh, and so my question to you is: Are you a materiality girl? And what do you, what do you think about what David has laid out here? I, I really hoped you were going to sing the song there. Um, so you know, I think that yes, materiality is key, right? Um, and, you know, why, why does it matter in this conversation? Why does it matter in the ERISA conversation is because the guidelines that the Trump Department of Labor just issued made clear that they basically used materiality to warn ERISA fiduciaries, i.e. those fiduciaries and asset owners who are guided by ERISA, that they could take ESG factors into account where they were material. So where they had a economic impact on the business or the company or the investment, they could be considered. But that there were times when something like climate change wasn't necessarily material. And so that is the, the needle that they were trying to thread. So, you know, David's position and, and others in the impact world's position is, well, no, you know, no big deal, right? We we agree that 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 these these factors are material. That's why we've been banging on about them for like the last decade. That's exactly why investors should look at them. I agree up until a point, right? And I think the 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 issue is that yes, you and I might agree that climate change. We know that climate change is having a long term impact on a number of things, right? We 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 know that over the long term there has to be a shift a shift away from fossil fuels to clean technologies and other sources of energy. We can all agree with that. That doesn't mean that I know what the material impact on my investment portfolio or on a investment strategy or a corporation is 
over the short and medium term, right? And it's all very well saying, well, you're a long-term asset owner, but I still have to invest on a sort of quarterly and annual basis. So there are still, I can't ignore what is going to happen in the next, you know, day, weeks, months, years. And so just because we can agree in the abstract that, you know, something like, you know, some, the, the issues have an, have an impact, doesn't, material impact doesn't mean that investors know how to implement or execute on that, or, or there, there is a clear line to say that is how you should be deploying it to be in line with your fiduciary duty. And so sort of, raising uncertainty about that does in some respects sort of bring you back to the point that says you know what it's it's easier to leave this to the experts and not make a decision based on all of these unknowns yeah i think that's right it, i mean that that is kind of the 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 sort of path of least resistance it's been the path of least resistance a lot of the fiduciaries have have liked that because it says you know those are complicated issues i can't they're not they're sort of external to my decision making and let the you know let the you know policymaker types you know debate those but i'm just supposed to hear maximize returns and what's changed i think you know you mentioned long term or the or the or the the, the horizon that these guys think about and that i think is the key factor. And what's what's turned out is that, you know, if you're a pension fund and you've got to be paying out pensions in 40 years, or you're a sovereign wealth fund and you're charged with, you know, safeguarding the riches of your nation for, you know, effectively, you know, forever, you're thinking in a different way than the day trader, certainly, or even the, you know, annual returns types. Um, now, of course, some of these fiduciaries and whatnot are getting their bonuses, you know, based on those annual returns. But but that has turned out, you know, there's been a general backlash separate from any of this social stuff. It's been a general backlash against kind of short termism. Um, and that and this is, all plays into that. So ESG has become kind of a little bit of a um, proxy for saying long term, you know, risk analysis and long term thinking. And the other irony of this, of course, is that some of these shareholder resolutions have not been prescribing any particular you know, direction. They've just been saying, actually, you should look at what these long-term risks are, um, particularly in climate. And so to say that, you know, to say that we can't look at long-term risks because we don't know what those long-term risks are is is a little bit of a tautology. And, and, and it seems that at least we should agree that th there might be long-term risks that we should take into account. Now, is, is this just a question of disclosures or is this a, a question of actual uh, action that needs to be taken? The activists would basically say, you know, whether they would say it explicitly, but the strategy is basically once you get to accounting and then you get to disclosure, it becomes harder and harder to avoid, you know, the logical extension of those of those of those of that analysis. Right. So once you've said, oh, our our fossil fuel investments are really at risk if we um, take into account the two degree climate scenario. Um, but now that we've identified that risk, we're actually not going to do anything about it. That becomes then, it becomes a liability, actually, which is exactly what they're trying to avoid. Thanks again to Wonder Capital, sponsor of this episode of Returns on Investment. Wonder last year helped contractors and developers deploy commercial solar in 15 states. Individual investors can participate with a $1,000 minimum. Learn more at wondercapital.com slash ROI. 
W-U-N-D-E-R, wondercapital.com slash ROI. So Imogen, is, is this the right fight for those concerned about increasing the number of assets that have an impact investing or responsible investing or sustainable investing lens to them uh, to increase the number of assets with that with that approach. Is this the right uh, fight? Is this the right way to engage? Or uh, is this a is this maybe you know well-intentioned but perhaps the wrong field of battle uh, uh, for the impact community to be playing on? You know, I think, I, mean, I think the materiality question is, you know, the material question, right? I think that to the extent that impact investors, ESG managers, whatever, can, can prove materiality and prove that there is a clear economic benefit, either from a, a gains or a loss standpoint to their investment strategies, then, then they start winning. However, that has not necessarily yet been proven except for in a handful of cases. And we, we can come back to that debate because many people disagree with me, uh, surprisingly. But I think you are also asking, is, is ERISA the, the right battlefield to fight this on? And I do think that there is a certain extent to which, you know, the impact investors have taken a knife to a gunfight, right? That the real players here are corporations and, you know, company, large companies and the Department of Labor and, and organized labor. And that the the interest these groups are much more powerful and much more influ influential and good at lobbying than the impact community which you know has clearly galvanized itself over the last decade but is is microscopic compared to, to these guys and i think that it made sense you know it took the obama administration almost the entire eight years to get this tiny piece of ERISA legislation changed. I mean, there was like endless, earnest debates about it. And, you know, again, it was really, it's really the Chamber of Commerce that didn't want this changed. And the reason the Chamber of Commerce doesn't want this changed is because it's corporate pension plans that are governed by ERISA. And they don't want, you know, Shell doesn't want its pension fund voting for resolutions in favor of addressing climate change risk, right? So there's large corporations that don't, that didn't want the guidance changed. And what the impact investing community did was they kind of rallied with organized labor to push back and say, no, this is this is what we want. So, you know, literally years of debating this thing. And then Trump administration comes in within like, you know, what is that like just over a year? The, the things changed back again. And so, so to live or die on that turned out to be. A mistake right and yeah sure people can turn around and be like well well it doesn't really matter and that like, materiality and da, 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 da. but you picked a very political fight where the impact community wasn't actually a stakeholder to wage that battle and the political the swing back of the political pendulum in a way that people didn't anticipate left the impact investment community and the sort of the ESG cause vulnerable and politicized in a way that potentially has greater negative and unintended consequences than people were prepared for. 
I think that, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's 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 a couple there's a couple of interesting things. One is when this was changed originally in Obama. I think it was 2015 or early 2016. I know Imogen, you were covering that and, and involved with that closely. Um, the expectations were high because the the analogy was when ERISA guidelines were changed in the 70s, I believe, and allowed these pension funds to invest in venture capital. And that's sometimes seen as the sort of opening bell of the huge venture capital wave that then, you know, led to the tech wave that led to, you know, the modern world, right? And so that this was, no, the notion was that these ERISA changes were going to do the same for impact that they did for tech. That of course, you know, ignored a particular point, which Imogen loves to make, which is that, you know, the venture capital was going to make a ton of money for these guys, whereas it wasn't very clear that impact investing was going to make a ton of money for these guys. Um, and it was less the ERISA guidelines than it was the hunger to make a ton of money. The other point, though, that you made, Imogen, which is that, in a sense, the impact folks took the bait when this memo came out a, a month or so ago, and they said, oh, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't just have to make the most amount of money. You know, shareholder supremacy is an old, you know, is a, is an outmoded notion, and these other things are important too. And in a sense, that was confirming exactly the fear that the the critics had said, which is that oh, you're sacrificing the returns or the you know the 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 pensions or the retirement security of these poor uh, pension holders for your you know for your particular social environmental you know pet causes. And, you know, who are you to say so? And that seemed to me a much weaker argument than to say, no, these are material risks. These are things that you should take into account as part of your fiduciary responsibility, because if you're not taking into account these long term risks, then you're putting those very that very retirement security at risk. So you are the ones who are, you know, playing playing with fire for your pension holders, not the folks who are saying that environmental social factors are worth considering. So that to me is why I said that this is the right fight to be have. We got to win this materiality argument. And there's lots of good work being done on this. You know, SASB and others are saying, what are the factors that in fact are material? It may not be that everything, you know, not all ES and G are, are, are created equal and not everything is, is material, but there are in, inarguably, there are parts of it that are material. And that's the question. Right, but David, is is the question here? Is this essentially setting up this dichotomy between those who believe that let the free market decide? So let those that invest with uh, a careful consideration of these ESG factors demonstrate that they can outperform and that they can uh, have a stronger track record, versus those who believe that no, we need to give a helping hand or put the thumb on the scale or have some kind of, if you will, government intervention to put the thumb on the scale for impact. You know, what is the better approach? Is it to let to, to kind of play out this thesis that impact investing or sustainable investing actually will lead to better financial performance in the long term, and therefore more investment allocations will will go towards and accrue towards those investors that can demonstrate that track record, or uh, are we saying that actually in order to enable the unleashing of uh, more uh, of these assets towards these kind of strategies, we need to have some a regulatory framework that helps provide that thumb on the scale. Thumb on the scale, I don't, I don't quite think is the right metaphor. I do think full risk accounting might be a better way to put it, or, or some other thing like that. Which is, um, you know, and and the other part of your question is what is long term, right? So, and I, I, you know, Imogen will say the 
case is still out about whether ESG does or doesn't, you know, outperform or, or at least, you know, equal the, the returns of, of non-screened portfolios. Those, those questions rage. Those are frankly empirical questions. You know, those are function of data and analysis and whatnot. Those shouldn't be values questions. They're just like, what are the factors that are material? How did they play into the decision making? Did they turn out to be, um, you know, material, as we say, to the to the returns? And I do think ultimately that will prove out. The, the battle will be fairer if you can say, you know, th- that more factors are considered and therefore the accounting, the disclosure, the risk analysis, you know, if those are mandated, that will help that analysis in the long term, right? So if you can just exclude everything but just sheer returns, you know, you know, they, you know. Actually, the Heron Foundation, which went through this, obviously, they're they're one of the no, known for putting their whole portfolio against impact. They did an analysis about, you know, how do you take into account, you know, job creation? How do you take into account wages? How do you take into? They found that the number one investment that they should be putting their money into, if that's what they were um, con- concerned about, would be private prisons. And then they realized, oh, private prison, not exactly where we want to be putting our, all of our assets. So they realized it's a matter of what questions you ask is, is, is a function of what answers you'll get. So um, the only way that the thumb should be on the scale is, you know, ask the so right questions. A couple of clarifying points. <laughs> First of all, ERISA, since we're talking about it, it's the, it was the Employee Retirement Act of Employment Securities Retirement Act of 1974. So that's when ERISA came into being. And there was then a clarification in or a change to ERISA in 1979, which opened up the possibility of venture capital invest, VC investing. And that is what is then sort of considered the, the dawn of the, the big era of VC. Um, and on, it's not that I, I do think that ESG considerations add value over time. I just think that we, we don't know what that looks like. And the, the argument that irritates me is what you're seeing currently happen is a lot of people pointing to the track record of the last three or four years and saying like hey if you had not been invested in energy companies or oil over that time your portfolio would have outperformed which is purely a reflection of commodities prices it has nothing to do with the stranded asset risk or the discussion over climate change and i think even as we talk about long-term asset ownership, much of the debates are over like short-term performance horizons and living on those, dying on those arguments is really stupid. And so I think that we have to, we have to be more sophisticated in how we talk about performance and how we talk about asset ownership and incentives and returns and results and outcomes. And it's very easy to overly simplify those arguments. And then to the issue of, you know, does there need to does impact need a hand a hand on the scale? Does it need a helping hand? I think it's, you know, I think that that's unfair. I think what they were trying to do is sort of everything lives in a regulatory environment, right? Like to assume that like other types of, you know, four hundred one k industry was invented by, you know, ERISA. Like everything everything is created through this. So, so to assume that assume that everything else isn't being assisted in some ways is, you know, clearly wrong. You know, if you go back to the original 1992 ERISA guidance over ESG investing, what that actually was was a letter from Calvert saying, you know, hey, 
Department of Labor, can we get some guidance as to whether or not people can do this? And the original letter that the Department of Labor wrote back basically said, you know, all things being equal, go ahead, knock yourself out. And Calvert has maintained since then that they don't need to go back to the DOL and get more clarification because Cal the, the, kind of think of the DOL as the Pope, right? They're meant to be infallible. So they can never say, oh, sorry, we were wrong. They just have to keep clarifying what they previously said. And Calvert has taken the position of, no, they, they told us in 92, everything else is, you know, a waste of time. So in some ways, it's not, you know, does impact need a helping hand? It's like, did impact just need to have the courage of its convictions and keep doing what it was doing? I think that's exactly right. Courage of, of its convictions. I mean, I, I mean, the, to your point, that to Brian, I think it's just, it's, you know, the data will play out. And the question is, you know, we have to keep looking at the data. We have to make sure we're, you know, not, you know, tweaking the data in some, in some but the problem with that, way, right, but... is the data, if, if the point is, is we're moving into, and at some point, the climate change is the obvious one, at some point, the energy mix has to change, right? We're moving into a, a new era. The data is always going to be behind the times, right? So you can't use, you know, past performance is no indication of future returns. Like, how can we, the problem is we're trying to use you know, ESG is useful as a forward-looking indicator if we can figure out how to do it. And that's that's where the challenge is. So there, and also there isn't enough time, right? Like we need to change our investing. We need to change our capital allocation. We need to change, you know, our energy makeup within the next 20 years. We can't wait for like, you know, Goldman Sachs to tell us it's okay. I mean, I... I just wait for uh, Goldman Sachs to tell us it's okay, in general. I, I, that's I, I, I spend I spend most of my days just waiting for 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 that that reassurance from Goldman Sachs. Um, so, David, what makes you hopeful as our wild-eyed optimist? What makes you hopeful uh, about the future of materiality and uh, the, the 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 fact that this will help uh, improve the decision making of how people allocate capital and how companies are run? I mean, I think the clearest indication actually are these um, are these shareholder votes themselves. I mean, you know, the, it, it, it's not only a small number of sort of activists, you know, sort of trying to carry this flag anymore. It's folks like, you know, you can see it in BlackRock changed in, in some of these votes and, and you can see it in Larry Fink's letters that we've talked about on this podcast before. I mean, the, the materiality question is coming to the fore in many, many more ways than it, than it ever used to and and the band or the army or what have whatever metaphor you want that is marching under that banner is is much much bigger frankly which is why the backlash is coming so i think of this as kind of a you know a sort of retro retread of an of an older debate that at some level has already you know moved on and you know you know folks got to catch up obviously but i think the the march of history is 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 is, is still forward all right, so it's not just Imogen that is living in a materiality world. Uh, we are all living in a materiality world. It's a very material world. That is true. Uh, Imogen, uh, are, are we in fact all living in a materiality world? We are all living in a materiality world. Yes, Brian. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, David Bank. Oh, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you, Brian Walsh. Special thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. 
Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment.